When my journey with Christ began, I think it was like it is for many people. It was a messy experience. Uh, there were habits and practices and indulgences in my life that contradicted life with Jesus. And obedience, well, it, it came hard. It was a difficult thing to enter into. It felt less like flipping a switch, you know, going from disobedience to obedience, uh, and more like engaging or turning on a strobe light, you know, light and darkness flashing and mixing interchangeably. It was like a battle was now on. You know, I would obey for a season and then fail miserably, and I'd usually stay in that state of failure for way too long. Those early weeks and months and years, they were, of course, like they are for many young believers, a time of rapid growth in my life. And, you know, pretty soon the struggles weren't as raw. But eventually, I began to discover that the struggle for obedience never stops in the Christian life. With each passing year, I have found new areas of discipline that the Spirit calls me to walk in, new ways that I want to demonstrate my allegiance to Jesus Christ. Now, believers who allow God's Word access into their lives will go through that process. They will realize that there are always new areas of obedience and that those areas will often be a struggle. You see, God's Word is like a mirror that enables you to see yourself correctly. It's like a lamp that exposes the true you. It's like a fire that burns away all that is unholy. But giving God's word room in your life will reveal countless areas for obedience to Christ. And though obedience is often a struggle, God is always there. He's always there to help us overcome our weaknesses and live in submission to his will. And that's our best life. Every day of the Christian life is a battle between flesh and spirit, darkness and light, evil and good. And God's mercies in this process are new every morning and every day we can cling to him because we need his daily aid in the struggle for obedience. Now the book of our passage today, which we haven't even begun to read, concerns an amazing moment where Jesus walks on water to his disciples out in a storm. It all happened right after the feeding of the 5,000, which we looked at last week. And you can only imagine in that moment the frenzy surrounding Jesus. You know, John's gospel, which was the last gospel written, tells us that they wanted to make Jesus into their king by force right then and there. And perhaps the disciples got caught up in the crowd's nationalistic, messianic enthusiasm. But Jesus, he had not come to start the kingdom that way. He had come to start his kingdom through his death. So he had to deal with that groundswell of excitement. And he knew exactly what he needed to do. And here it is, starting out our passage in verse 45 and 46. 
It says immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. Now, in Mark's gospel, Mark doesn't often highlight the prayer life of Jesus. The other gospel writers spend more time talking about the way Jesus prayed, where Jesus prayed, when Jesus prayed. Mark only records three times that Jesus prayed. The first uh, time Jesus prayed in Mark's gospel was after a period of early success in Galilee. We saw this way back in chapter one. Uh, and after lots of success, he went out alone to be with his father. And his father helped him see afresh what his mission was actually all about. That he was a preacher first and a healer second and not the other way around. The third time that prayer shows up in the Gospel of Mark from the life of Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before Jesus goes to die upon the cross. Both of those prayer episodes, the first and the third, have to do with Jesus getting recentered upon and for his ultimate mission. The second time though, the middle episode where prayer is mentioned is right here after the feeding of the 5,000. And I believe that this moment of prayer, like the first and the third, had to do with Jesus's mission. On the mountain, he was reminded of the nature of his kingdom. It was not external merely you know, feeding the masses only. Jesus came to produce inward salvation. And for that, he had to die on the cross. He had to dismiss the crowd in order to save the crowd. And on that mountain, Jesus received the strength that he needed to press on. And if our Lord needed prayer before his father to reinforce his focus and refresh his vision, then certainly we need prayer in the same kind of way. But for Jesus to get to the mountain alone for prayer, he had to ditch his disciples. He had to send them away. Mark says in verse 45, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. He made them. He compelled them. He forced them. He urged them, the word means, to get into the boat. This was not their first instinct. This was not their first idea. But Jesus made his disciples go and go they did. This leads me to the first point that I wanted to make about our struggle for obedience. Number one, you have to go where he directs you. You have to go where he directs you. This is the first step. You know, you'll never even struggle for obedience if you don't first launch out into Christ's direction for your life. You know, everybody that's watching this right now, we all know someone who has verbally identified with Jesus, but has never taken even the first step to conform their lives to his word, his dictates, his law, or his standards. For a person like that, there's no struggle. Obedience, it's not even an afterthought because it's never even been a thought. 
This person is on the shore because they never got into the boat in the first place. But the disciples, they ventured out in the direction that Jesus had for them. They were going to go to the other side. They got into the boat. They were trying to obey. This is the first step. You must try to obey. You must go where he directs you. Now, there are two main areas of obedience to Jesus I want you to think about today. The first is biblical obedience. And what I mean by biblical obedience uh, is obedience to the basic universal commands of Scripture. You know, in this category, you'll find things that Jesus wants you to stop doing. You know, believers, for instance, must not be slanderous people. Uh, the tongue is like a spark that can start massive fires. So we shouldn't lie. We shouldn't slander. We shouldn't misrepresent others. Uh, another example would be sexual integrity. You know, God has a standard for our lives and we must put off all forms of whatever scripture calls immorality. But there are a lot of examples of this category of things that we should stop doing that are found in the Bible. Jealousies, hatred, unrighteous anger, theft of any kind. Each of these things should be put off in the believer's life. But there are also things that Christ wants us to start doing or again do if we've stopped doing them for a while. You know, we're called to be honest people. We're meant to be generous and service-oriented. We're called to pray, share the gospel, and demonstrate compassion. All these stop doing or start doing areas of obedience, they apply to every believer. They're scriptural and they are universal. But there's also, secondly, not just the biblical obedience, but then there's also his personal leadership of your life. You know, what career path? should I choose? Is it time for me to move? Should we try to have a baby? Who is Christ leading me to befriend? Uh, should I serve in a particular ministry? In other words, every believer should flee all forms of immorality, but only some believers should become dentists, right? There's biblical obedience and then the personal leadership of Jesus. Some forms of obedience are universal and scriptural, while some are personal as he operates as the Lord of your life. But in all of those areas, you must begin the process of going and doing whatever he directs you to do. You must not argue. You must not fight. You must get in that little obedience boat and start paddling. That is the first step. But let's see what happens next in our passage. Verse 47. It says, And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. Now this all occurred deep into the night. Remember the crowds, the 5,000, they had been fed in the evening, the early evening. But now in the complete dark on the water, the disciples struggled 
I, I like the way Mark says it. He says, verse 48, they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. You know, other translations are helpful here. You know, one translation says they were straining at the oars. Another says that they were being battered as they rowed. And another says they were in serious trouble, rowing hard and struggling against the wind. Perhaps you've had a similar experience. You know, perhaps you've read something in the Bible before, an area of obedience that you want to enter into, and you set out to do it. If so, good job. But perhaps just as quickly as you started to obey, you discovered how hard it was to obey. You want to use your tongue for good. You want to be generous and service oriented. You want to pray. You want to be pure. But you've strained and struggled and felt battered like these disciples straining at the oars in your quest to obey the Lord. This leads us to a second thing about our struggle for obedience. Number two, you must learn how hard obedience is with only your strength. You must learn how hard obedience is with only your strength. You see, having taken the first step, we will often learn that it's easier said than done. But the disciples, they were like us. They needed to learn how hard obedience would be if they only relied on their own strength. Once Jesus got into the boat, they would arrive at their destination. His power, his might would enable them to obey. But until the point of the power of Christ intersecting with their own will occurred, they would be powerless. And in the years to come for these disciples, in the days of the book of Acts, their obedience would be crucial. They would have to move out in obedience to the Lord, but it would also be insufficient unless the Spirit empowered their work. You see, in the same way, we need the Spirit's ability today. And we must learn how hard obedience is with only our strength. We need God. We need His ability to mix with our faith. Only He can produce the beautiful love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control inside of us. I probably don't need to say much more at this point. All of us are familiar with straining to do God's will, struggling to obey. But before I move past this point, I want to hold up the Old Testament characters of Abraham and Sarah to all of you. We've been studying them in our Tuesday night church gatherings through the book of Genesis. God told them that they would have a son through whom God would unfold his plans. The years ticked by and no human power or ingenuity or plan could produce this child that God had promised. It felt like it was impossible. They were way too old. Their strength was completely gone. But God came along and one day reaffirmed his promise. God asked them a wonderful question. He said, is anything too hard for the Lord. 
You see, though obedience feels impossible with only your strength, God is able to help you obey because nothing is too hard for him. All right, now let's move on into the story and see the most marvelous portion of it in verse 48 and following. In the middle of verse 48, it says, And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. Okay, th this miracle, it's so fantastic and it's so otherworldly that many have tried to explain it away. Uh, but this is exactly what happened. Jesus came walking on the water. You know, if Jesus can rise from the dead, if he can create the galaxies, then he can do this. And the way he did this is fascinating. First, it says that he waited until the fourth watch of the night. That's that's the Roman way of saying that he waited until somewhere in the 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. time frame. They were out there all night until the last watch of the night. Jesus had seen them while he was up on the mountain. It's possible that he could see them three or four miles away because it was near the Passover and the full moon that accompanied it. Or... He might have had supernatural telescopic vision in that moment. But he saw them and now he comes out to them on the water. And the whole movement, everything about the passage, it just hints and suggests that this is a moment that the disciples were inter interacting with the divine, that they were interacting with God as Jesus walked on the water. How do I know that? Why would I say that this passage is meant to show us that Jesus is God? Well, first, he walked on the sea, you guys. <laughs> I mean, this defies the natural order in a very significant way, indicating a miracle that only God could perform. The same God that parted the Red Sea, the same God that split the Jordan River, uh, is the same God that is now walking on the water. Second, walking on water and passing by his followers, just like Jesus was going to do, is what God does in the Old Testament book of Job. It says in Job 9, verse 8 and 11, God alone stretched out the heavens and trampled on the waves of the sea. Behold, Job said, he passes me by and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Third, when Jesus finally spoke to these frightened disciples, he said, it is I. In the Greek that Mark wrote in, the phrase is simply in its basic form, I am, which is the title that God used of himself when he spoke with Moses, I am. Fourth, 
Jesus told them not to be afraid. He was there, and so they did not need to fear. This is the kind of language the whole Bible uses to describe God. Over and over in Scripture, God says, don't be afraid. I'm here. Here in this passage, though, Jesus says, don't be afraid. I am here. Fifth, the whole episode is the gospel message in miniature. I mean, the bread is full and abundant on the shore when Jesus fed the 5,000. The disciples then head out on their journey. A storm comes. Jesus sees from on high their tragedy. He descends from his place to save them. He did what they could not do by walking on water and consuming the storm. That's really, in a sense, what the gospel is. The Garden of Eden was beautiful and abundant in its provision. God's people then tried to live in obedience, just like the disciples tried to obey Jesus crossing the Sea of Galilee, but all of them failed. The storm of the curse came upon Adam and Eve, and God descended from the mountain or from heaven to us in Jesus. He did what we could not do by living a perfect life, dying for us so that we could avoid the storm of God's wrath. If you don't know him, believe in him, trust in him today. But there's one last way, a sixth way that this passage points to Jesus's divinity. Notice how in verse 48, it says, now he meant to pass by them. It's kind of a, a statement that sounds comical to us. Like Jesus was playing a practical joke out there on the Sea of Galilee. But, but what did Mark mean by that statement? A lot of scholars have ventured lots of different guesses at what this phrase actually means. I think I saw a list of even 15 or so different guesses of, of what it meant that Jesus was going to pass by them. But in recent years, more people have begun to think of it this way. In light of everything that I just pointed out, you know, about Jesus, that, that all of these things were pointing to his divinity, could this also be a hint at the divine nature of Jesus? You see, there was a time when God put Moses in the cleft of the rock and was going to pass by his man on Mount Sinai. There was a time that God was going to or did pass by his major prophet Elijah on Mount Oreb. Jesus is greater than Moses and Elijah. God did not pass by Jesus as he had for those figureheads in the Old Testament, but Jesus, he passed by his men. In other words, Jesus is imitating God because he is God. This leads me to the third thing I want you to see about struggling to obey the Lord. Number three, you have to know who he is. You have to know who he is. You see, this is not the first time the disciples had struggled at night on that lake. The last time they found themselves in a storm like this, 
Jesus was asleep in the stern. And that night after they woke him up and Jesus calmed the wind and the wave, they asked the question, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And then it was the end of that episode. The question has gone unanswered until this point. On this night, in this second episode on the lake, Jesus answers their question. He says, it is I, or I am. Again, it was a statement of deity. It was a way for Jesus to answer their question, who is this, by saying, I am God, I am divine, and I am with you, and I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. And in our struggle for obedience, we have to remember who we're dealing with. Jesus is fully man, and he is fully God. He became one of us, but he also created us. You see, the knowledge of Jesus's true identity is important because I think we often believe too little of Jesus. There's a, there's a small classic Christian book written by J.B. Phillips called Your God is Too Small. And in it, he makes the case that many believers have a view of the Lord that is too low, too small. And we, we might see Jesus as able to comfort us or encourage us. We might think of him as able to counsel us or guide us. We might think of him as able to befriend us or even satisfy us. But can we see him as the almighty God that we must turn to for deliverance? Can we see him as the one who makes us new? and delivers us from the wrath to come, but also delivers us right now from these bodies of sin that we live in today. Paul said it like this in Galatians 2.20. He said, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If Jesus is who the Bible says he is, knowing his identity is a powerful aid in our struggle for obedience. He has the ability that we do not have in our own strength. All right, let's finish our story and our time together in the word today in verse 51 and following. It says at the end of verse 51, and they, when they saw the calm sea, were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Okay, our, our passage today, it ends with, and we just read it there, this summary report about Jesus's healing ministry. Not a lot of specifics as far as who and when and where, but Basically, everyone and anyone who came to him were made well, it says in verse 56. Word even spread, it says, 
about the woman, remember her in Mark 5, who had touched the hem of Jesus' garment? People started saying, if we do that, then we'll be healed. And they were. Pretty soon they were touching the fringe of Jesus' garment to be healed. This report is Mark's way of giving us a sense of the general atmosphere surrounding Jesus' life at that time. And to tell us that Jesus did more than he could record. But notice the response of the disciples to this whole thing. Well, they were on the boat. It says in verse 51 that they were utterly astounded. It says in verse 52 that they did not understand about the loaves. And also in verse 52 that their hearts were hardened. Here's the last thing I want you to see about our struggle for obedience. You must, number four, understand what he's done. Understand what he's done. I mean, picture it. There they were. They, they might have even been seated in the boat in the midst of 12 baskets of leftover bread that Jesus has, had created. But because of the hardness of their hearts, they had no idea what those loaves signify. And in our struggle to obey, we must allow our hearts to be soft enough to understand what Jesus has accomplished. It's one thing to step out and try to obey, to feel how hard it is to obey, and to know that he has ability that we don't have ourselves. But it's another thing entirely to believe that he wants to help us. How can we learn of his willingness to help us? Well, for this, we must remember the cross of Jesus Christ. Paul said in Romans 8, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You see, with the knowledge of the cross in our mind's eye, we can know with certainty that our God wants to help us in the all things of life, including to help us in our allegiance and our obedience to him. He can help us overcome. It's not just that he has the ability, but he has the desire. This is why we must know what he has done, understand what he has done. So in conclusion, let's become ever more a people who run to Jesus for his help in our struggle to obey. We want to follow him. We cannot do it in only our own power, but his power is enough. And as we look to the cross, we know that not only is he able, but he's willing to come to our aid. So let's cry out to him. Let's pursue the spiritual disciplines that he's given to us. Prayer and scripture meditation and worship and singing and community and confession and the like. These all help us tap into his power. And we have to tap into his power because only with him will we get to the other side. God bless you, church. Have a wonderful week.